0: Two on eight. Two on eight. Say you're clear. Standby for your base. Welcome to the very first EMS Cast Breaking News Episode. I'm your host Ross Orpit. Matt Mendez unfortunately couldn't be with us today as he is at the hospital working hard to fill in the gaps in coverage left by those forced to be quarantined by this unprecedented COVID-19 outbreak. Which brings me to our topic today, and what a doozy topic for our first breaking news episode. We brought on
1: Whitney Barrett to help
0: us discuss what we need to know about this, how we can keep ourselves and our patients protected, and how we can continue to take great care of our patients during these special times. Dr. Whitney Barrett is currently on the team organizing the Denver Health Emergency Department response and preparedness to the COVID-19 outbreak. In addition, she serves on the Federal Disaster Response Team, DMAT, and was deployed as the medical officer caring for those returning from Japan who had been on the Princess cruise ship when it was struck by COVID-19. She is also a EMS fellowship trained physician. She's the medical director for the Denver Health School of Paramedicine, the medical director for AMR Denver and Golden, and she is the assistant medical director for the Denver Health Paramedic Division. Whitney, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I am super excited to have you on today. It's March. Spring is right around the corner. The sun's coming out. We have some 60-degree days. People are getting out, having large picnics together. Concerts are happening. Everybody's going out to their favorite restaurants. It's just like, what a day to be alive.
1: Oh, right?
0: Okay, so that is a little tongue-in-cheek. I actually brought you on here to discuss the fact that most cities have closed everything down and nobody's allowed to hang out with anybody anymore.
1: I know, it's a weird world we live in these days.
0: (laughs) So what's going on? Can you just give us a little background?
1: Yeah, so obviously we'd sort of watched this thing called COVID, this emerging disease in China for some period of time. And and here we've now found it here in the United States and really worldwide, WHO has declared it a pandemic. So now all of us are looking at what we do as hospital systems and pre-hospital systems to respond to this pandemic.
0: Why is this such a big issue? And, and more specifically, why is it so important to us as pre-hospital providers?
1: So, Obviously, this is a communicable disease that we, pre-hospital in particular, are interfacing with the public on a on a daily basis in many capacities. And even though we all learned as EMTs and paramedics, you know, scene safety, BSI, everything like that, it's one of those things that I think we've taken for granted for a long time that, you know, you put some gloves on to start an IV or you you maybe wear some glasses if you're going to do something that involves splashes, but now we're really forced with looking at how do we protect ourselves best, which then allows us to protect our community better, and how do we fit into this public health arena of preventing disease while taking care of patients.
0: Why is everyone so concerned about this COVID-19?
1: In part, it's new. We don't understand all of it. Unlike most of the diseases we take care of where we've studied them and understood them for years, this is the first time we've experienced it, which has impacts that are far-reaching that include our understanding of the pathophysiology of it, how patients present with it. And also, just the simple fact that we don't have immunity to this disease. And so the impact of this disease up front, which is what we're experiencing, is much more far-reaching than what we usually experience with the regular flu, because there's a large population who's going to have immunity or some immunity to diseases like that.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the signs and symptoms of COVID?
1: Sure. So I think it's important to talk about the signs and symptoms which has caused a lot of problems with this disease because it looks like most of the viruses that we have blown off for years because they don't seem to cause as many problems. And so the early symptoms are sort of your general infectious symptoms: fever, malaise. You know, maybe you have sort of URI or influenza-like like symptoms, which makes it really difficult as we're in the field picking out patients that might be a COVID patient versus a flu or a rhinovirus. What we've seen from sort of other communities like China and Italy, who have been more severely impacted than we have been so far in the United States. Is this progression of the disease from sort of those vague infectious like symptoms to developing a fever? And it seems like at some point most people with COVID develop a fever. However, while there's been a lot of emphasis placed on, well, do you have a fever or not? It's not actually that helpful as in a lot of places only 40% of people present with fever with their first presentation.
0: Yeah, I think the study I looked at, 40% presented with a fever, but something like 80 to 90% developed a fever throughout their hospitalization. An important distinction that when you see them, they may not necessarily have developed that fever yet.
1: Yes, and I think it's super important. I think we've talked a lot about fever as it relates to this disease and you can't really lynch it with needing to have a fever to diagnose it. What
0: about the other symptoms like the URI symptoms?
1: Yeah, so depending on what you read and from whom you read it, cough seems to be a big component of these symptoms. Things like runny nose seem to be less commonly seen with it. But I think the safer thing to do is to just consider that general gestalt you get from people than you, when you talk about the influenza-like illness that involves a lot of malaise things and and subjective fevers and whatnot is sort of the the bucket that we use to catch this patient population rather than specific symptoms.
0: Kind of those flu-like symptoms. Although from what I've read, it seems like GI symptoms are, are less prevalent as well too.
1: Yes, GI symptoms seem to be less prevalent. There's some stuff that I've read that younger people early in their course have some diarrhea maybe, but it's all hedged in maybe possibly early. And so I don't think it's it's anything that's a major component of this disease by any means.
0: So who's at risk for this? And particularly, who do we need to worry about getting super sick from this?
1: Our biggest populations that are at risk are older people. And depending on what you look at, that's the cutoff is age 60 or 65. And then patients who have comorbidities, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease chronic pulmonary diseases, immunosuppression, sort of those catch-alls that we frequently think about as being higher-risk patients.
0: What about the young?
1: The young seem to be less impacted, and actually children seem to not have significant complications related to this disease. Certainly there are descriptions of kids that end up on ventilators and whatnot, but the last I heard, which this information changes all of the time, uh, but there have not actually been documented deaths in a child under the age of 10 at this point, and similarly very low numbers of significant complications in sort of the teenage age population. The other groups, sort of the 20s, 30s, 40s, seem to also do better, but there are certainly a number of descriptions of cases of young, otherwise seemingly healthy people who have who have gotten really sick certainly young people aren't completely immune to this but they are definitely in a lower risk category
0: so when somebody does get super sick from this what are we seeing what happens to them
1: the people that tend to get sick the major issues that they have are are respiratory they develop Hypoxia, and it's interesting to read a lot of the stories that are coming out of other areas. Sometimes and frequently, this is just a pretty profound hypoxia without a lot of increased work of breathing. It's just sort of that O2 sad of 90% as you're turning your. your- your simple mask and your non-rebreather and everything else up and up and up, looking at a patient who doesn't actually look too terrible initially. And some of these people ride it out, it seems like, on really high amounts of of oxygen. And then other people go on to need positive pressure ventilation in, in some variety. The mainstay of treatment for this disease is oxygen.
0: So who needs to be tested for this?
1: So this is a great question. I will first and foremost say that the most important thing is that you're aware or defer to the guidance that is given by your local public health, because depending on where you work and depending on the availability of tests will dramatically change who is getting tested for COVID. Currently here locally, and I think in a lot of places where testing is limited, we are primarily just testing patients that need to be admitted to the hospital and healthcare providers who have been exposed with symptoms in order to help determine when they're able to go back to work.
0: So just those either sick enough to be admitted to the hospital or those who are taking care of those sick people who need to be admitted to the hospital. So we're no longer recommending testing those with comorbidities who may have respiratory symptoms?
1: Locally here, we're not. I think in a perfect world, a lot of people would like to be able to do that, given that we don't have a lot of treatments, and hospital space is probably going to be at a premium. If people are safe to go home, we're letting them go home with really strict instructions about isolating themselves and instructions on if they get worse to come back since it seems like there is a general worsening around sort of the seven to nine day mark if people are going to get significantly worse.
0: And that's a Good point. I mean, epidemiologically, we would definitely like to know the burden of this disease. However, that being said, knowing is not necessarily going to change our management in any way in these patients. If they're healthy enough to go home, they're still going to go home and there's still no treatment available for this.
1: I would also add that it's probably important to realize that our test is not perfect, like many things that we see. And the sensitivity is lower than we would probably like for it to be. I've heard numbers around 70% and it probably depends on the test that you're using locally.
0: So we're potentially missing 30% of those people who we test who actually have the disease, which is why it's important to isolate if you have any sort of respiratory symptoms, because even if your test is negative, it could be a false negative. Exactly. So as we respond to calls where people are complaining of cough or shortness of breath or fever, what PPE measures should we take kind of when and why?
1: So this is a really big topic to talk about, and it's an interesting intersection of what the recommendations in a perfect world might be and resource management and allocation and sort of what the best thing from a public health standpoint is. The CDC and the WHO both have put out a lot of information about appropriate PPE for COVID. And and I really encourage anybody who's curious about this, there's tons of information to read up on that. But we think, based on what we know, that coronavirus is spread via droplets. So it requires sort of spit or mucus to be transmitted to somebody else. And for that reason the the highest priority is being placed on droplet and contact precautions, meaning protecting your eyes and your mucous membranes with eye protection and a mask is as well as sort of protecting your clothes and that's more for transmission of disease to other places and other locations once you're done taking care of patients. And so that is the mainstay of the currently recommended PPE. There's a lot of talk about N95s and other respirators. Currently, the recommendations are to just use those when you're doing an aerosol generating procedure. That distinction is important and part of that helps us preserve our PPE for as we're seeing people that are sicker or might need more aerosol generating procedures.
0: What are aerosol generating procedures?
1: The common ones that we think about, especially pre-hospital, would be nebulizer treatments and non-invasive positive pressure, so CPAP, as well as intubation.
0: In the emergency department, we've switched from using nebulizers to actually using MDIs um, or inhalers because it's my understanding they have similar efficacy in the treatment of COPD and asthma exacerbations. Are there any talk of switching to those on the ambulance?
1: So there has been talk about it, as we've seen with a lot of things related with this disease. You know, initially the recommendations were that everybody need to be in an N95, but then you put everybody in an N95 because that's the safest thing. And then you get low on N95 masks. And so then you have to think, well, is that the best thing to do? Because or... when
0: you really do need it, you no longer have it.
1: Exactly. And so we're seeing sort of similar shortages now as everybody has sort of done the same thing in their hospital setting of not doing nebulizer treatments anymore and just doing MDIs, that there's probably, and we can anticipate probably a shortage of MDIs as well, which then also makes it really hard to get those on the ambulance, as we know, especially since frequently they're not reusable if those patients are on contact and and droplet precautions.
0: Yeah, I think in the emergency department, we've talked about this as well. If I have a patient with a COPD or asthma exacerbation and I am not suspecting COVID, then I should still start with a nebulized treatment to save those MDIs for those patients who I do suspect COVID and we really do want to prevent from aerosolizing any virus.
1: Absolutely. This amount of resource scarcity is something we're not frequently faced with in the United States. Yeah.
0: There are a lot of agencies putting uh, non-transport protocols into place. Can you just discuss about that a little bit?
1: Yes. So the idea behind this, as we all know, pre-hospital, there's a lot of people who call to be evaluated or who think they might need to go to the hospital. And as this disease becomes more prevalent and community spread, transporting patients who don't need to come to the hospital or definitely don't need to come by ambulance is a benefit from a public health standpoint. Many places have put in very, strict sort of non-transport protocols. And here ours involves age less than 60, lack of comorbidities, normal vital signs to screen out patients that are lower risk for having significant immediate complications. It doesn't mean that they can't still go to the hospital, but our recommendation is that they stay home or if they decide to go, that they go POV instead of then contaminating or potentially contaminating a whole ambulance and a crew.
0: Now, is this from any sort of illness or just like COVID suspected or respiratory illnesses?
1: Great clarification. Yes. So this is specific to that bucket that we talked about before that is this infectious respiratory illness patient.
0: Is there any word? here or around the country at kind of a dispatch identification of this and even not even sending an ambulance on some of those calls?
1: Yes. I can't speak for what agencies are doing elsewhere. We certainly have put into place a number of things from our dispatch to try and identify patients who again, fall into that bucket of being concerning for COVID or this undifferentiated respiratory illness so that our people, when they go into the home or start engaging in these patients, with these patients that they're protected and they, they have the appropriate PPE on. The flip side of that, obviously, is that we don't want to have everybody go in and all their PPE for the, you know, MVC that that doesn't need it. It's part of a resource utilization. We have had some challenges with this because it is such a broad category of patients and sort of hits in your respiratory dispatch code and your sick patient dispatch code and, and a lot of other crossover.
0: But I think important things if you do respond to that call is downing appropriate PPE before you arrive on the call. And that will likely be dictated by your particular agency, but at the minimum droplet with a surgical mask and goggles and contact precautions. And then also considering sending less people if not needed. So only sending one or two people on the ambulance as opposed to the two on the ambulance plus the four on the fire truck plus a EMS command personal plus PD plus whoever else likes to show up.
1: Exactly. There's a lot more staging and coordination for these patients than than we probably normally engage in.
0: So with regards to having somebody who actually does need treatment to the hospital because they are sick and some of the airway management or invasive procedures that we might do in the back of the ambulance. Can you just comment on those a little bit and best practices?
1: Obviously, we want to take care of the patient that's in front of us, but we also want to minimize risk to our healthcare providers, because if all of our healthcare providers end up getting sick, we also have a problem, and our pre-hospital providers are probably a greater limited resource than even a lot of our PPE. So as we're talking with our pre-hospital providers about this, and I think you alluded to much of this... If a patient doesn't need a treatment like aerosol generating procedure, like a nebulizer treatment or something like that holding off. And I know that's hard for us because we want to fix the person that's in front of us. But if you have a 10-minute transport time and your patient is wheezing, sure, you could start a NEB, but you could also just wait till you get to the hospital where an MDI might be possible or a negative pressure room might be available to better minimize risk to everybody. The other thing that comes up is this idea of intubation, which is probably one of the highest risk things that we do pre-hospital in terms of exposure to to ourselves. And so avoiding intubation if possible. Again, that's easy to talk about, but when you're looking at a patient who has bad SATS, is working hard to breathe, it's a decision you have to make at the time. But thinking a lot about just turning your oxygen up to try and stave off intubation, making sure the receiving hospital knows sort of the patient that you're looking at in front of you so that they can be ready with a lot more resources in terms of PPE and protection to healthcare providers to get these patients intubated or consider putting them on non-invasive or whatever might be indicated at the time.
0: So that being said, if somebody... Does need an airway, and your only other option is to BVM. Realize that that's also going to aerosolize the virus, and so at that point, you just got to intubate them because that's what they need.
1: Yes, and if you have, if you're in a system where you have superglottics, eye gels, whatnot, it's probably a good conversation to have with your medical direction to see sort of what their recommendations might be as far as best practices pre-hospital.
0: Are there any other special considerations for pre-hospital providers you'd like to talk about here?
1: I think in the setting of all of this, where Everything we see all of the time is about COVID. It's so important that we remember as pre-hospital providers and providers in the hospital, that our treatment of patients and our assessment of patients is not binary. It's not just about, does this patient have COVID or not? It's about what are these patients' symptoms, what is going on with them, because people are still having heart attacks, they're still having aortic dissections, and all sorts of other things. And pre-hospital providers really are that gate to care. So we have to make sure that we approach every patient with an open mind as far as what could be going on. And certainly there are factors in our communities now that, that impact those decisions in different ways than we're used to. But at the end of the day, it's important that if People can stay home per your guidelines or whatever else because of COVID. We do that, but it doesn't mean that just because grandma who's only heard about how she's going to die if she gets COVID or if she goes to the hospital or if she leaves her house calls with symptoms and she wants this to be just tell me I don't have COVID, it doesn't mean she's not actually having an MI with her nausea or something like that. So we have to be really diligent about just keeping our minds open and assessing the patient that's in front of us.
0: Yeah, even just in the hospital, I've heard stories from my coworkers about just the challenges of being so focused on COVID and make sure somebody doesn't have COVID that they missed something that was so obvious that they definitely would not have missed otherwise. And so being sure to stay diligent and do the things that you know how to do and do well already um, and continuing to do that. Also realize that all of these recommendations are changing very quickly, day to day sometimes. So what we talk about today may not be pertinent a week from now, but uh, stay diligent, stay up to date on your protocols and uh, what your medical director is wanting you to do. Can we just talk for a second a little bit about uh, what are we doing for these patients in the hospital once they get to us?
1: Well, like I mentioned, it it seems to be that the mainstay of treatment for these patients is oxygen. In the setting of not having a whole lot of well-established medications or anything else that we can use for treatment, the primary treatment is just escalating amounts of oxygen to treat hypoxia. There's a lot of discussion, and it depends on which blog you've read or web podcast you've listened to recently about whether going early to intubation is the right thing to do or to try and do non-invasive positive pressure in a way that minimizes the amount of aerosol generating particles. Yeah,
0: the concern is there, if you put somebody on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, you continue to aerosolize the virus throughout that procedure, as opposed to if you intubate somebody, you aerosolize it in the short term during that intubation, but then that patient's on a closed circuit and can no longer aerosolize that virus.
1: Exactly. And so it depends a little bit on what your resources might be at your hospital for how they manage that.
0: Other than respiratory symptoms, are there any other medical complications we're seeing from this virus?
1: Some of these patients are presenting with essentially cardiovascular collapse, which is suspected to be from myocarditis. So the virus is affecting the myocardium of their heart and leading to heart failure, essentially. And these patients can be really difficult to manage and obviously will appear really, really sick with a lot of hemodynamic variability and compromise.
0: Yeah, this occurs with uh, a lot of our other viruses as well. Whenever you see a patient uh, who has chest pain and a recent viral illness, you should always think myocarditis or pericarditis in addition to your normal differentials such as
1: MI. Yes, and it, again, just goes to your point of we've got to keep our, our mind open. And with chest pain, do your EKGs, do your 12 leads. Make sure that we're checking all the boxes consistently with our patients.
0: Well, this is a lot of great information. Can you just summarize, bring this all home for us?
1: I think it's safe to say that this is a really big deal and all you have to do, right, is recognize that nobody's going to work and nobody's going to the bars and nobody's going to restaurants to appreciate that. I think it's also fair to say that this is the health crisis of our century and is unprecedented in collective memory and experience. And so that comes with a lot of fear of the unknown. But I think it's also important to remember that this doesn't change how we practice medicine at its core. And so at the end of the day, our job pre-hospital and in the hospital remains the same. We see patients. We evaluate them. We decide if they're sick or they're not sick, regardless of sort of the etiology of that sickness. And we do the right thing for them. We rely on those things that we know and treat them according to their presentation. Despite sort of all the hype and information that is swirling around us, I think we know how to take care of patients. And I think it's really important in this time of the unknown and the Fear to really rely on that training because it will take us a long ways.
0: What's your title with like all of this COVID stuff? I mean, you're like, I don't know. All the emails I get are from you. (laughs) You seem to be running some sort of show right now.
1: I don't know what my show is. (laughs) It's a circus. the ringleader the coven ringleader I leader right now. the circus master <laughs> <laughs> does that count for a title <laughs> sure.
0: alright